passage is Luke, chapter 19, beginning in the 36th verse. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they'd seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace, but now it's too late. Peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good to see all you wonderful people here. My name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors here, and I am a child of the 80s. In fact, I was born in 1980, to be precise, and I know that there are many people in this room who had not yet been born in the 80s, so let me just tell you that the 80s was unanimously decided that it is the greatest decade of mankind ever. (laughs) Humankind has never experienced anything like the 80s since, and if you didn't get to experience the 80s, let me just tell you a little bit about it. First of all, the economy was great. It was booming. Inflation was way down, unlike today. Technology was seriously advancing. IBM released their first PC. Apple released the first Macintosh during that time. The Berlin Wall came down in the 80s, which was also the beginning of the end of the Cold War. I mean, that's pretty significant, right? But more than anything else, the 80s were peak, peak, for pop culture. (laughs) Nothing has been done like that since. I mean, I'm talking about some of the best music that has ever come out. Bet you didn't think you were gonna get rickrolled at church today. (laughs) Fashion was definitely at its peak in the 80s. I'm pretty sure I had the pants on the left. I am not joking. I'm pretty sure I had those pants in the 80s. (laughs) And movies were really great in the 80s as well. Of course, we had the release of the original Top Gun movie. Yeah, thumbs up to you too, Tom Cruise. Absolutely. And one of my favorite movies, which is a little more obscure from the 80s, but I watched it a lot as a child is Labyrinth. If you've never seen Labyrinth before, I mean, this movie is epic. We're talking about something that was directed by Jim Henson. So there are puppets throughout the entire 
movie. It was produced by George Lucas. It was written by Monty Python, the Monty Python crew, and it was starring Jennifer Conley and David Bowie. David Bowie's not weird, so you know it's going to be really, really good. And just in case you haven't seen it, let me give you a little synopsis of the movie. There's a teenage girl named Sarah, and Sarah has been entrusted with a responsibility. She has to watch over her little brother, Toby, while her parents go out for the night. Well, Sarah is not happy about having to watch Toby. Sarah also lives in a bit of a fantasy world in her mind. So in her anger and disappointment in watching Toby, she calls out to the Goblin King and asks the Goblin King to take her brother away from her. Well, she was pretty surprised to learn that the Goblin King was indeed real, and Jareth, the Goblin King, took Toby away from her and said, you've got 13 hours to make it through my labyrinth to my castle to rescue your brother. If you don't make it in time, then your brother will become a goblin in my kingdom. Well, Sarah set off on her adventure. This was a big responsibility that she had. And she was doing fairly well overcoming all of the obstacles. But then she met Agnes, the junk lady. There's our beautiful Agnes right there. Agnes is just one of many junk ladies right around the city collecting all the junk that's out there. And she kind of creates this room for Sarah that is just like her room back home. And it has all of her possessions in it. It has all the things that make her comfortable. It has all the things that make her life easy in that room. And she gets so comfortable that she begins to wonder whether the adventure was even real or if it was just a dream. She finally realizes that it was real. And she looks around at all of the things that she thought was important to her, and she said, this is all just junk. It's all just junk. Now, somehow, this has something to do with Palm Sunday, and I don't know exactly what that is yet, but I'm hoping we can work it out by the end of the sermon here. We're going to do what we can, because today is Palm Sunday, and it's the start of something really important. It's the start of Holy Week, and we've been venturing through Lent for some time now, about 40 days, and maybe you've picked up some new practices for yourself in Lent that have helped kind of gear your attention more toward God in your life. And hopefully you don't give those things up after Lent either so that your attention can continue to be on God. Holy Week is a really important time. It's where we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And on Palm Sunday, we remember how he entered into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And we've got a little bit of an experiential aspect for you in that that's out in the lobby there's some art that our creative community has put together out in the lobby on that side. So after the service, I would encourage you to go out there, see the art, and then read the instructions, and there's a way for you to participate in that art to, re to remember uh, Palm Sunday. So here we are with the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday. Let's talk about that triumphal entry just a little bit. That's what Gary read here from our passage this morning. Last week, Denise was teaching on Luke chapter 9, where she had said that Jesus had set his face on Jerusalem. Well, now many chapters later, and many miles later, and many miracles later, and many stories 
later, Jesus is now at the point where he is going to arrive. And this is a really big deal. There was a lot of anticipation around it. For three years about, Jesus had been ministering all over the area, and more and more followers were starting to come around him as he was teaching with authority, and as he was healing people and performing miracles and changing people's lives, there was a lot of hype around Jesus at that time as he's about to go in. And so as he's getting closer to Jerusalem, all of the crowd around him that's been following him, been traveling with him, they began to throw out their garments and palm branches in front of him, making a pathway, an entryway for him to enter into Jerusalem. This has happened before. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, there's a story about a king in Israel when he's first coming to power that the Israelites threw their garments in front of that king as he's coming to power. Jesus, he's not on foot by this point coming into Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. His friends, his, his disciples, had acquired that donkey from someone in a neighboring village just before this time, and now he's coming in to the city on a donkey. This has happened before, too. There was a king in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, who, when he was taking up his kingship, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Better a donkey than a horse. A donkey is a symbol of peace. A horse is a symbol of war. So as Jesus is, and all of his followers, they're about to come down the hill into Jerusalem, and all of his followers begin to cry out and praise God for all that they've seen God doing through Jesus. And they start singing his praises with the words of Psalm 118, words that have been sung and said, recited and chanted many, many, many times before. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Except they add a little word to it that's different than Psalm 118, as if they even needed to make it more obvious than it already was. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Everything that's happening in this moment as Jesus is coming in, there's, it's filled with anticipation because the stage has already been set. All of this has happened before in different ways, and it's all happened before in different ways in anticipation of this moment right now when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. One of the prophets of old even said this. This is from Zechariah. Chapter 9, he says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Not everyone in the crowd that day, though, was so excited about what was happening. 
The Pharisees were there in the crowd as well, and they weren't singing along the words of Psalm 118. In fact, they were saying something to Jesus that was more like, you better shut these people up. We're not happy about it. Hashtag, not my king. <laughs> Jesus' response? The most lifeless form of creation, a rock, has enough sense to see what is happening in this moment, even if you don't. This is an intense moment, full of expectation, full of anticipation. There's anger there, there's shock there, there's confrontation that's happening. But not everything is as it seems, even for the people who are there in that moment. As is so often the case with Jesus, he's trying to help us to see something that's below the surface of what everybody sees. But in order for us to get a sense of what that is, we have to go back to the future. No, wait, that's just another great 80s movie. <laughs> we just have to go back in time just before Jesus was entering into Jerusalem when he was telling a parable, a story, to his disciples. The story is essentially about a nobleman who is going to go away to a faraway country in order to become king. And before he goes, he chooses 10 of his servants and he gives each of them a mina, which is a, a portion of money, a weighted portion of money. And he says, while I'm gone, put this to work for me. Now, some of his subjects, his people, hated him and didn't want him to be king. So they sent a delegate ahead to that faraway land saying, we don't want him to be king. Hashtag, not my king. Well, he did become king. And he came back and he checked in on his 10 servants. And the first servant came to him and said, you gave me one, I made it 10. Oh, well done, said the king. You've been faithful in a little I'll put you in charge of 10 cities. And the second servant came up and said, you gave me one, I made it five. Well, all right, I'll put you in charge of five cities. And then a third servant came up and said, I buried the mina that you gave me because I was afraid. You're a hard man. I know you reap where you don't sow and you harvest where you don't plant. And so I did nothing with it. The king said, you wicked servant, you're going to be judged by your own words. You knew that I was a hard man, that I reap where I don't sow, that I plant where, where I harvest where I do not plant. You could have at least put the money in the bank and earned some interest for me while I'm gone. Now the rest of you, take away his one mina and give it to the one who has 10. And everyone said, well, he's already got 10. The king said, that's right. Whoever has, more will be given to them. And whoever doesn't, whatever he does have, will be taken away from him. What does that have to do with the triumphal entry? Jesus gives a little clue to that, or Luke gives a little clue to it, just beforehand in chapter 19, verse 11. It says, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. 
Now, the kingdom of God was there. Jesus was showing up as a king. You remember the donkey and the the garments and the palm branches and the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and the rocks will cry out? But the kingdom wasn't fully there yet. Not everything ends up going so well, or at least not as you would anticipate it should go for a king as they're coming into power and entering into their city. You may have heard this before, but Jesus died later that week. Things didn't go as planned. And yes, God raised him from the dead, but then he went away. I think the point of the parable that Jesus is trying to make here is that he's saying the kingdom isn't coming in power yet, but it will. And in the meantime, I'm going to go away and I'm going to entrust you, my followers, with all the things of the kingdom. And while I'm away, I want you to do kingdom work with the things that I have left you with. You ever been entrusted with something before? I don't know who was entrusted with forming the culture of the 80s, but they did a bang-up radical job. (laughs) Think about it in a real practical way. If someone you knew and cared about gave you $1,000 and said, will you put this to work for me? Will you invest this for me? Would you take that seriously? Would you want to do well with that? Or what if someone just loaned you their car, entrusted you with their vehicle? You'd want to take care of it. Or your ho- their home, you need to house it for someone. You would take care of that. You would take that responsibility seriously. Now, the king in the parable, he has entrusted something of high value to his servants. A a mina wasn't a small amount of money. It's like three or four months of wages. And because the, the amount is high, the stakes are high too. And so he calls his servants back and there's accountability for what has been entrusted to them. And for the first one who turned that one mina into 10, it goes pretty well. And that's where the king says to him in verse 17, well done, the king exclaimed. You're a good servant. You've been faithful with the little entrusted to you. So you will be governor of 10 cities as your reward. Now the second servant had a similar outcome. The third one, well, you know, he took a slightly different approach in terms of how he invested that money He didn't do what the king actually asked him to do. And so in verse 26, the king says to him, to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Yikes. You use it or you lose it, I guess right? Which is really true in life in a lot of different ways. The things that we use and that we exercise and that we put energy and effort into tend to grow and develop versus those things 
that we give no attention to that end up just languishing away. It reminds me of a friend of mine here in the church uh, who was, through the Acts series, felt like, hey, I should be talking about Jesus more like I used to back in the day. And so this person started putting some intentional effort into talking about Jesus throughout the day with people that he would encounter. And you know what? The more effort he put into it, the more opportunities were suddenly presented to him where he's having all of these conversations with Jesus as he goes about in his life. Now, there's an aspect to this parable that we have to be a little careful of, and that is that not everything in this parable is viewed very favorably. In fact, the king himself is not always viewed very positively in the parable, right? There's the third servant who comes who says he's afraid, right, of the king. And this is how he describes the king in verse 21. He says, I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. The challenge with a parable is that so often we want to identify how all of the details match up or correspond to things in real life. But that's not really how parables work. Parables are meant to share something generally, but not all of the details line up perfectly, kind of like my analogy of labyrinth in the 80s. It's not going to line up perfectly with this sermon throughout, so don't look at the details too much. Parables are given, they're communicated in order to make a person think and to question and to respond. So in this parable, Jesus is king. But the character of the king in the parable isn't the character of Jesus. Not all the details line up perfectly. You just have to read the Gospels to be able to see what the character of Jesus is like and to recognize that it's different than the king in the parable. Or you don't even have to go that far. Just think about the triumphal entry for today, and we see a lot of clues as to the character of Jesus. Like, for example, that he rode in on a donkey, a sign of peace, and a humble gesture, rather than coming in on a war horse. Or as he's first coming in and he sees Jerusalem, this is what it says, Luke says in verse 41, but as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. He's compassionate. He actually cares about people. He's got all the power in the world, but he cares about people. Or once he did enter into Jerusalem, the first thing he does is goes to the temple, and this is the scene where he flips over the table of the money changers because those people, uh, the money changers, are taking advantage of all the travelers who have come to worship in Jerusalem for Passover that week. He flips over the tables and then he says in verse 46, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. He's just. 
That is, he's looking out for the people who are being oppressed. He cares about justice. So his character is good. He's not like the king in the parable, even though he is the king that the parable is talking about. So why does Jesus tell this story then? I think he tells this story so that his followers, that's you if you're a follower of Jesus, that you know that who you are, who God has made you to be, and what you have is of importance to him. And that you are an actual contributor in the kingdom of God. That what you do is significant. And that you've been entrusted with a great treasure. You've been entrusted with something that's important. And the parable's important because we're going to need the reminder continuously of that because Jesus is going to be gone for a while. And the treasure that he has given to us, he wants us to put to work while he's away. So let's talk a little bit about that treasure then. The challenge uh, with this parable is that it uses the analogy of money. So maybe we think the most important thing that Jesus has given us is money or our resources. But there are things much more important than money. And that kind of makes sense. And when we talk about things like stewardship in the church, right, where that's being a manager of the money that God has given us, but stewardship is about more than money as well. There's something greater that the analogy of money is pointing to. The king in the parable, he's an earthly king, so he's dealing with earthly things like money. But Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Ultimately, what Jesus has entrusted to his people is his kingdom. It's the very kingdom itself. A little bit later, he's gonna say to his disciples in chapter 22, he says, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Or another translation of this that I really like is, I give you the right to rule just as my father has given me the right to rule. This is something that God has always been doing, entrusting his kingdom, his right to rule to his people. And this starts all the way back at the beginning when he created humankind. When he created man and, and woman, he said, he set them on the task to rule and to reign in his place. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It means to be a representative of God, to represent his rule and reign to all of creation. Well, that didn't go smashingly. And so the scope got narrowed just a little bit. 
And pretty soon it was just Israel who was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. That is, they were the ones who were supposed to represent God's rule and reign, not only to all of creation, but to the rest of humanity as well. Well, you know, didn't go so swell. So then the scope got narrowed even more. And then there were priests. And it was the priests in Israel who were supposed to represent the rule and the reign of God, not only to all of creation, not only to the rest of humanity, but to Israel itself. Well, if you've read the Old Testament, some of the priestly stories aren't so great. So the scope got narrowed one more time, and this time it was to Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect representation of God's rule and reign. He's the one who has been entrusted with all things and is perfectly faithful with all of those things. But Jesus went away. And in the meantime, he takes what was entrusted to him and he entrusts it to the church. All of the kingdom entrusted to his followers. And the idea is that in the new heavens and the new earth, that's gonna permeate everything. There'll be no distinction. It'll all be under God's rule and under God's reign. That's a lot of responsibility. I don't know about you, but I have trouble handing things off. I have trouble entrusting responsibilities and tasks with other people sometimes because then it's not going to be done my way. I want things to be done right. And so I want to do them to ensure that they're going to be done the right way. Case in point, in our house, there are two ways to load the dishwasher. <laughs> there's my way, and there's the wrong way. <laughs> Only I seem to do it my way. I'm trying to teach our daughters how to do the dishes well, and there's some act of just entrusting them with that task. Honey, we can talk about this later. Please don't, don't shake your head at me. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I want to control things and to ensure that I am getting things done the way I want them done. But God is different than that. He has entrusted all things to people. Do you think we do it right all the time? Nope. We don't. We kind of stink at it. But God continues to entrust us with his things and pointing us toward Jesus as the example of the perfect faithfulness of, of what to do with the things, the kingdom that has been entrusted. Okay, so if a parable, if one of the purposes of a parable is to cause us to respond, how do we respond with this? What do we do with this, with this parable? What is our response? I've got three questions here to help guide us in our response. And the first one is to kind of get at what is it that we really have been entrusted with? The question is, what is your mina? Or what mina has been entrusted to you? 
Now, remember, this is more than just the money. The money is an analogy for something else in life. And yes, it's as broad as the kingdom, but it's also very specifically individual for all of us. What is it that you have been entrusted with? So I'm going to ask for just a few responses right now. What is a mina that you have been entrusted with? What has God entrusted to you? The good news. Yeah, he's trusted the message. He's entrusted us with the message of Jesus and told us to go out and to make disciples to the ends of the earth. Great, yes. Our home. Yeah, that's a really important possession or really just all of our resources, our material things like that have been entrusted to us. And the home is a really good one that's been entrusted to us. How do we... How do we work that well in the kingdom? Think about hospitality. What do we do with that great possession of a home that we have for the kingdom? Okay, what else? I didn't hear that one. Was that? Neighbors. Neighbors. Absolutely. Relationships. Think about friendships, neighbors, your coworkers, family, all of the relationships around you that you have been entrusted with by God. And his great wisdom somehow has worked it out that you know the people that you know. There are all kinds of things that we could talk about. Even your circumstances you have been entrusted with. The different gifts and the skills that you have. Who God has made you to be, you have been entrusted with. How about your job your responsibilities, your tasks, things like that that have been entrusted to you, or your time. Time, that's one that we all have, right? Everyone has the same amount of time that has been entrusted to us, and what do we do with our time? The second question here kind of gets at that third servant, and the fear that the third servant had and what that servant did in response to the fear by burying that mina in the ground out of fear. So the question is for us, what ground do you tend to bury things in? And what I mean by this is, what are the things that keep you from using all of what God has given you or all of who God has made you to be? Doubt. Doubt. That's a great one. Absolutely. Like, well, can I do this? Fear is very much connected to that. Can I step into this thing? What what if I give this this thing away? Then I'm not going to have it anymore. That's going to be... A problem? Or what if I try and I fail? What if I don't succeed? What's that going to be? What's that going to be like? So fear and doubt, good. What else do you bury things in? Indifference. Boy, that's a really good one. Indifference, absolutely. We become very comfortable with the things around us, and it tends to make us a little bit indifferent. Or maybe we become jaded and cynical about life and about society, about the world, and we just think, yep, I can become a little bit indifferent about that. What else do you bury things in? Busyness. 
We don't value busyness in our society. What are you talking about? Yeah. Oh, it's from the 80s. <laughs> that, was, that was good. <laughs> yeah, we have a high value of busyness in our society. If I could be busier than you, then I'm more important. I'm more valuable than you are. So we're just going to keep the swirl of busyness going, even if it's not really the most important things that we should be concentrating on. We don't need to think about the most important things as long as we're staying really active. Bury that down into busyness. Good. Yeah, I'm going to take one more. What else do you bury things in? Self-centeredness is a good one. Yeah, absolutely. We bury it within ourselves and we just look in this direction rather than seeing what's out around us and how we could be generous with what God has given us, what he has entrusted us with, which again is not just material resources, it is who you are. It is sharing of who you are with other people. Okay, this, this one uh, actually connects well with the labyrinth one because this is where Agnes, the junk lady, comes in and she ends up being this huge distraction for Sarah. It was all the stuff around her buried in piles of garbage that ended up distracting Sarah from what was most important, what she needed to do more than anything else. But eventually she realized this is all just junk. There's something more important out there. Okay, last question. And this one I'm not looking for responses on. But the question is, what can you be faithful with today? The idea of this is really just to make it more achievable for us. Because if you're anything like me, you look back at the past and you think, boy, I didn't do that well, and now how can I do it well? Or you get caught up in the future going, I don't know if I can achieve that. What am I supposed to do in the future? But we can't change the past. We can't anticipate everything in the future. What we have is today. In what ways can I be faithful today? I've squandered a lot in my life. When I came to faith in my mid-20s, that was like my primary thought. I have wasted so much of my life. But you know what? I keep squandering things. Even this week, I squandered things. And I think, man, I could have done better this week. That's where God's grace comes in and allows me the freedom to be able to say, I can't change that. God's grace is over it all, but I do have today. What can I do today? And today is an important question. It's the one that's at hand. And there are different levels at which we need to answer it. Some of it is larger level. What does the church need to do today in order to be faithful with what God has entrusted to the church? It makes me think about events from this week. You know, the day that that school shooting happened, I got a text from a family member saying, hey, in your Christian community, how do you treat trans people? Right away, those questions come up. 
how are we going to deal with what has been entrusted to us on a large level? But then it works on an individual level as well. Some of you are high school students in here. And if you're a follower of Jesus and a high school student, you have the greatest hope within you. And how many of your peers are racked with anxiety and fear right now? But you've been entrusted with this great hope. How can you bring hope to other people who are racked with anxiety and fear? Maybe you're just getting started in your career or you're full on excelling in your career right now. That's something that's been entrusted to you, but it's also something that can consume you. Are you letting it consume you? Is everything else getting buried under your career? Or are you using your career as something that's been entrusted to you by the king for the purposes of his kingdom? Maybe you're an empty nester or you are far along in retirement and you're wondering like, what do I do at this point? Well, you could coast it out if you want. But what has been entrusted to you that you can still be using for the kingdom even today in the way that you care for people, pray for people, help people out? All of these things happen today. Now, there's one little aspect in closing here that we didn't cover from this parable, and that's the subjects of the king. The ones who, not my king, didn't want him to be king. They end up facing the biggest consequences of all in the whole parable. And that can be kind of a scary thing, to recognize that God is full of love and grace all the time, and yet there's, there's an aspect of accountability that we have to God as well. The biggest thing to realize in this parable, though, is that the king, not in the parable, but the king he corresponds to, he may have been rejected like he was by the Pharisees that day and like he was by many, many people throughout the generations and like he has been by you and I on any given day. But that rejected king died for us so that today... And any day, we can turn to him. That we can receive life and that we can be re-entrusted with all of the things of the kingdom for us. He's gone away, but he is coming back. He's gonna come back. And he's a good king just looking at the triumphal entry humble, bringing peace, compassionate, and just. I got to tell you, I wait for him to come back. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good, although I feel like I just have the smallest taste of your goodness compared to what is there. So I pray for you to reveal more of who you are to us, I pray, God, for your spirit to be working in your church here in a powerful way. I pray as people go out this week that you would just be filling them, overwhelming them with your grace and with your love and that you'd be showing them 
how important they are to you and all that you have entrusted to them. I pray, God, that you would teach us how to be faithful each day. And I thank you for your grace and that you are faithful to us even when we're not faithful to you because we're often not. We look to you and we love you. Amen.